This morning, I want to continue uh, the exploration that we uh, began last year. It sounds funny. Uh, exploring the nature of our experience of time. We continued that exploration in the guided meditation. And to set the context again, the larger context of our inquiry is a series of talks that I've been giving uh, for a number of times. I think this is the uh, 12th in a series uh, called From the Ordinary Habitual Mind to Buddha Mind. And the, the whole idea for this came first out of a talk I did probably a year ago related to the poem uh, called The Journey by Mary Oliver. And I interpreted that poem in terms of different stages of what we might call spiritual development. And the initial stage I called something like being caught in habitual mind and taking life for granted. Just taking life for granted, not really being that aware. And in that original model, then things went, as it were, onward and upward from that. But I, on reflection, I wanted to come back and look at the basic structures of what I was calling the ordinary habitual mind. Because actually, as we know, even as we continue to develop, those structures remain. Even when there are tastes of awakening, even when there's substantial development, the ordinary habitual structures of the mind remain. And so I wanted to identify those and identified 10 dimensions of what I'm calling the ordinary habitual mind and pointing to what those are and how a shift takes place as we access what in different traditions might be called our Buddha nature, our awakened nature, and how, according to those 10 uh, dimensions or 10 aspects, uh, we develop. And so, thus far, I've been uh, looking at the first five of these as I've identified them. And this is my own listing. And if I was comprehensive, there might be 32 or I don't know. But I've identified 10. And the ones we've looked at so far include these. First, we looked at what I've called ordinary thinking, the thought process, and examined how we develop uh, in terms of our relationship to the thought process and thinking. The second was what we might call the heart and how the heart awakens. You know, we know this most clearly when we do practices like compassion practice or loving kindness practice. Uh, oh, actually, that was the third. The second was how the body changes and how our relationship to our usual way of seeing the body shifts with practice. The third was uh, the heart, the ordinary way we relate to the emotions, to 
what we sometimes call the heart and how that develops as we go further. The fourth was our sense of, a, of an independent separate self, which is one of the traditional areas identified in, in practice. And the fifth that we're continuing to look at today is our sense of time. That's what I'll focus on today, maybe next time. And I'll be, uh, in all of these, what I do is I really do three things. First, I, I try to identify the ordinary sense, the ordinary habitual sense of a particular aspect. In this case, we'll be looking at the, what are the, what's the ordinary habitual sense of time? What's our conditioning around time? That's the first. Secondly, I then ask what, to the best of our knowledge from text and from our own experiences, characterize an awakened sense according to a particular dimension. In this case, what does the sense, how does the sense of time change as we awaken? And then the third is, how do we go from one to two? In other words, how do we practice? What kind of practices do we work with in this case in terms of time? That'll be the structure of the talk. Pretty simple. What's our conditioning? What's our potential? How do we realize our potential? It's one way of saying it. Okay? And then I'll just say that the, uh, the other ones that will, will be uh, hopefully looked at in the future after we finish with time, so to speak, <laughs> include uh, the fact that in ordinary mind, there's a great deal of unconscious material that's driving us. Number six. Number seven, there's a great deal of social conditioning that's driving us. Number eight, we tend to see the outside world as made up of permanent objects. All of these shift rather radically as we awaken. The ninth is, there's a lot of reactivity <laughs> with ordinary mind. I like this, I don't like this, I react all the time. And that changes. And number 10, we're not in touch with what we might call sacred or awakened awareness. There's a way that we're not in contact with uh, the sacred dimension. And that's, so that's, that's, uh, that's what we'll explore. So, time. So time has its uh, very mysterious aspects, first of all. And I'll first really point out, and some of this comes from our conversation last time, point out some of our ordinary ways of experiencing time. And maybe just first good to say that there's a very mysterious dimension to time. You know, we, we've reflected that for many of us, we what we might call our most precious experiences occur when we don't have any sense of time. When we're in the present, we have a strong sense of flow, even a sense of timelessness. And we often, uh, um, what? We often uh, write down memories of these special experiences or even take photographs so that we can have memories in time of what, what is timeless or what was experienced as timeless. So you can see just by even trying to express this in language, there's a certain amount of 
irony, <clears throat> sometimes humor. You know, I'm talking about our experiences in the past of timelessness. Okay. So I think some humor, irony can, can be helpful. We know, again, in the mysterious aspect, time slows down, it speeds up, very different senses of time at different time. It's a mysterious aspect. Um, some of you know a beautiful poem by Mary Oliver called When Death Comes. I won't read the whole poem, but she's contemplating death, and she actually died almost exactly a year ago. Uh, and at the age of 83. And she wrote this poem about when death comes, basically saying, I want to explore it. It's a mystery. You know, it's part connected with the mystery of time. And her last two lines were, based on these reflections about death, I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. Mm. So what are some of the ordinary constructions of time, our ordinary experience of time? And I'll give a lot of attention to this because uh, a large part of what, we'll, what I'll encourage when I point in the third section to our practices is just seeing how you construct time, looking at, at it over and over again. How do I relate to the past, the future? Where do I spend my time? And so forth. So I'll mention a number of uh, ways that we construct time uh, going beyond what we looked at last time. So conventionally, we assume that there's past, present, and future. We tend to think that time is an aspect of objective reality or ultimate reality, that there's kind of a, a great uh, cosmic clock correlated with Greenwich Mean Time. When we, when we look, we can start to see more clearly that the sense of time is very connected with a sense of self and a sense of self that persists over time. So some of what we'll explore when we look more deeply at time is how the sense of past and future is related to our sense of self. And the other side of that is that often when we don't have a sense of self, which we can experience regularly in meditation and in experiences like the ones that we've been calling flow experiences, when we don't have a sense of self, very commonly we don't have a sense of time. And very commonly we take those as among our most precious experiences. My most precious experiences are when I don't have a sense of self. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so generally when we look closely at anything, we encounter paradox. Okay, so. And paradox is generally a good sign that we're getting close to the mysteries. 
So when you say, okay, this was my most valuable selfless experience. <laughs> okay. And so also in a very ordinary way, we act in order to have things occur in the future, in time. We make plans. I made a plan based on time about uh, when I should leave my home in order to be here on time. You did something similar. Yeah. Another more obvious way that we're influenced by time is that we're deeply impacted by both uh, negative experiences in the past and positive experiences in the past. And they can... Uh, we can, it's more, maybe more obvious with negative experiences, including even including trauma, that with negative experiences, they can lead us to project the past onto the future. Sometimes out of fear. I don't want that to happen again, so I'm really cautious right here. And I'll come back to that point. So some further patterns that we can notice in our ordinary way of constructing time. First, we may cling, related to what I just said, we may cling to memories, both positive and negative. You know, it's very interesting to look at our attitude to uh, photography photography and uh, having a lot of photos. I I think I mentioned last time that uh, they did some studies, some psychological studies, they being the researchers, and they discovered that actually when we take photographs of events that are happening, they tend to be actually more meaningful. It's interesting. Maybe it's because we give more attention. I don't know. They, they found that, you know, and I know uh, I like to uh, take a lot of photographs when I go to really new places, and I think it's, uh, it's interesting how we do that and how we relate to those photographs. And again, we can also be deeply affected by negative experiences. Sometimes, again, I'm inviting, I'm naming patterns. I'm inviting you what are, to see what are your patterns. Not so much in reflection, but by looking in experience. In meditation, outside of meditation. But these were just some patterns that I reflected on, that some of which I found in my own experience, some from others' experience, sometimes we try to stop time. Some of us do that because of uh, appearances and social conventions. So as we get older, because of the way we look at older people in the society, which is different from other cultures, and there's a lot of ageism, tremendous amount of ageism in this culture, many older people try to keep the appearance of being younger, right? And uh, again, it might not do that in the same way where older people more valued. I think it's connected with that. And so we may dye our hair or do all sorts of things that are connected with sense of beauty, 
probably apply, I think applies more to women than to men in the culture because of conventions of beauty and so forth. Uh, I mean, I've had conversations with a number of people. Uh, I remember uh, talking with one woman and she said she was seen as very, very beautiful. And when she was in her 50s, she had a sense that she was losing it. People weren't paying attention to her and it was devastating in terms of her self-concept, right? And uh, very much tied to social conventions and so forth. And, and so we may try to stop time. Uh, we may perpetually want to be young because it seems like uh, in our culture, uh, younger people may be valued more. Certainly uh, in terms of advertising and selling products, it seems to be more directed at younger people uh, and so forth. So that's one dimension. A very powerful dimension of our relation of time is that for many of us, in subtle and not so subtle ways, we try to control the future. Right? And we try this, you know, and maybe, and again, it's to look at, but this is something that I think was, has been very strong in my own conditioning. I mentioned... I think last time, just in passing, that uh, noticing my own tendencies to plan was one of the insights right at the beginning of my practice that I noticed that I was just planning all the time when I just would stop, okay, in, out. And I was a student then, I, and I, would, I had a, would have a report in three days, and I would plan it continually. And I just noticed so much planning, you know, all the time. And I could see that it was uh, something that was very common in my family. I've sometimes joked that when we would have family uh, gatherings, maybe for a holiday, before we even asked each other how we were, we would plan when we would get together again. <laughs> okay, got to do that, right? And over time, you know, uh, I noticed, I remember noticing about 10 years after I started practicing and I was doing a lot of retreats. And I started to notice in one retreat, what I sensed when the mind got really quiet was a kind of anxiety about the future. A kind of anxiety about really experiencing the present moment without controlling it. There's a subtle level of conditioning. I could notice that. It was, it was both interesting and exciting and a little bit shocking. My God, I can't just be in the present moment so easily. There's, it's, it's a little scary, right? And I think that must be a very common conditioning. Can anyone relate to that? Yeah, I think quite, quite common. And uh, pretty unconscious, right? It wasn't like I, it was maybe passed on through the culture and family and so forth. And, and so we may have many different strategies of controlling the future. It might be to plan a lot. It might be to control, try to control other people, right? Uh, it might be always having a plan for everything. This is from uh, some reminiscences. Some of you may know this. It's a, it's a well-known reminiscence by a woman named Nadine Stair who had this reflection at, when she was 85. 
You see, I'm one of those people who's, who lives sensibly and sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I try to have nothing else, just moments one after another instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter than I have. So we have a, we have a parachute disposal at the back of the room. <laughs> and of course, uh, planning is incredibly useful, right? And so it's not to uh, negate planning or say it's unimportant, but again, it's to see where the planning is coming from that can be important. We may notice also in a related way that we become fearful or anxious when there's unplanned time, especially in this culture. Anyone relate to that? You may, you may have a day off and get anxious. What am I doing? Oh my God, I'm not being productive. Yapes. Help, right? Uh, where we, the same thing may happen on a vacation, right? We go on a vacation. I've heard from people, they report um, in the middle of a vacation, finding that there's a fair amount of anxiety because they don't know what to do. And they think, I should know what to do. I should be doing something. And I'm doing nothing. Oh my God. Anyone relate to that? Have experienced that? <laughs> yeah. Would, would it be okay to wait till and bring it in at the at the end? Okay. Okay. And in in certain ways, we can even have this desire to control keep us involved in suffering because it's known, and we often prefer known suffering over the unknown. Better to keep with known suffering than to open to the unknown. That's, that's poignant, right? That's powerful. Because I have control. I have control even if it causes suffering. And that's less scary than giving up control. That's powerful, right? That's so, so planning and control can be very intense. And this goes o- over also into, uh, on a social level, usually we say that those who uh, control history are the victors and the powerful, who write history the way they want to write history. And so sometimes we have to look and rewrite history because history gets written in, in certain ways. You know, I have a book that's a very beautiful book called uh, Against Forgetting. It's a book of poetry edited by Carolyn Forche. It's called uh, uh, Poems About Witnessing, particularly witnessing painful historical things and wanting to keep those present when there are a lot of pressures to not be aware of them. You know, and we know that happens historically, 
that there is a forgetting and a not attending, especially to negative things, you know, that that is the case. For example, we've never really seen accurately the history of uh, the near genocide of indigenous people and slavery. It's never been looked at really carefully to the point that people know what happened, right? So there, there, there are aspects of the way that those in power can even control history and what's learned. I, I think of the, uh, you know, the textbook battles that have taken place in various states. I saw really, there's a very interesting article in the New York Times a, a while ago which showed uh, how uh, a textbook in uh, California was different from a textbook in Texas, even though the textbook was published by the same publisher, right? But they gave each state the option to go certain places. And there just were these total gaps in the Texas textbooks about a lot of details about slavery, for example. They just left them out, right? Yeah, so, yeah, quite something. So, I'll try to be briefer now because I, I saw I have this really long list of our tendencies with time and I want to get to awakening and how to practice, okay? So, I'll try to be careful with time here. Okay. Um, So sometimes we think that time is endless. For example, many of us know intellectually that we will die, but experientially we don't believe it. And we act as if time is endless. That's interesting, isn't it? Right? Another interesting aspect is that time can be experienced in very different ways. Sometimes time speeds up and sometimes it's really slow. Like if we have something difficult happening, maybe we're recovering from an illness and we're not able to do much, time gets very slowed down and it's uncomfortable, right? And sometimes when we're having a good time, it feels different. I just... uh, finished co-teaching the uh, annual January Meta Retreat. Several of you were at that retreat. And the teachers, we, we would commonly say, this seems like it lasted such a long time and everything also went so quickly. It's interesting, right? Uh, and both seem to be true. Sometimes when I teach retreats, I, I invite that sense, especially of it having been a really long time, maybe on the fourth day, after people arrive and it can feel like they've been there for 10 days or 12 days, although it's been four, right? And it's interesting. So a very different sense uh, of time. There's a very different sense of time when we're dreaming. You know, and in many cultures, there can be also uh, rituals that take us outside of ordinary time. In Australia, the Aboriginal understanding of time sometimes goes into the understanding of what's called dream time. I think Alcharinga in the original language. And it's a way, it's a, it's a, a time in which one can go beyond ordinary time and meet ancestral beings, you know, and archetypal beings. 
This is a poem by Gary Snyder about the relative nature of time. One day when Lou Welch was uh, still alive, we were, he was sitting by me by a campfire outside the pine trees and stars in the Sierra Nevada. After a long while of silence, he said to me, Gary, do you think the rocks pay attention to the trees? I said, I don't, I don't know, Lou, what you're driving at. <laughs> and he said, well, the trees are just passing through. <laughs> Later, I came up with this little poem. As the cricket's soft autumn hum is to us, so are we to the trees, as are they to the rocks and the hills. So often we want to save time. We don't have enough time. Often time is a scarce commodity. Often we're in a very speedy way of being. This is from my friend and colleague, Diana Winston. Contemporary America, by the way, this was written like uh, 18 years ago, I think. Contemporary America, we love fast things, fast cars, fast meals, microwaves, one-night stands, instant credit, overnight express, cable modems, amphetamines, pizza delivery, make everything. Then she says, what did we do before email? <laughs> I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, spell, meditate, take a walk, my God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out. I'm running fast. And furiously, I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why I want it to stop? Can you make it stop? What's gone wrong in this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I am so tired. Please, somebody, you have to ha- got to help me stop. <laughs> is that familiar? <laughs> Sometimes so another dimension, and then I'll just mention a few other things that we, we fill up time with activities, and in our culture, there's often too much to do, so there's time pressure. Uh, some of this is institutional. Things are structured by time. We have uh, clocks. Uh, do you know that the uh, mechanical clock only dates from 1300? Right. Before that, though, there were sundials and other ways to hourglasses and stuff. This is from, uh, this is from a playwright uh, from Rome dating from 200 BCE named Plautus, who was complaining about how time was organized. Listen to this. This is from 2,200 years ago. The gods confound the person who first found out how to distinguish hours Confound that person too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. When I was a boy, my belly was my sundial, one more sure, truer, and more exact than any of them. This dial told me when I was had when twas proper time to go to dinner, when I had ought to eat. But nowadays, why even when I have, I can't fail to unless the sun give leaves. The, towns, the town is so full of these confounded dials. <laughs> the greatest part of its inhabitants shrink up with hunger, creep along the streets. Any contemporary echoes? Right, so... Okay, so...
last time I talked also a little bit about uh, I talked a little bit about uh, uh, time according to contemporary physics, and I I, I looked up this time I looked up uh, uh, the fact that uh, time travel is actually possible according to physics. Uh, a quote: um, "Traveling forwards in time is surprisingly easy." Einstein's special theory of relativity shows that time passes at different rates for people who are moving relative one another, although the effect only becomes large when you get close to the speed of light. Okay. Maybe this is enough. <laughs> uh, I mentioned also that the sense of time is constructed in children and only is rather fully developed at age eight. Before that, when children are very young, it's more timeless, and then they gradually develop aspects of a sense of time. Uh, some of you are probably watching this or have noticed this carefully. So what's the sense of time for the Buddha when there's awakening? What does time look like? And I want to mention three areas. One is that there's heightened awareness of impermanence and change, number one, I'll look at that. Number two, that there's much more attending to the present moment and living in the present moment. These will all point to practices. And thirdly, that there's a kind of pointing to what we might call timeless awareness. So these are the three characteristics I want to point to of an awakened sense of time. Clarity about impermanence, a sense more and more of being in the present and the now, and thirdly, opening to a sense of timeless awareness. So I'll go briefly into those. So we know that uh, the Buddha emphasized impermanence over and over again. And in fact, all, you know, in terms of practicing, attending to impermanence is a very beautiful and deep practice. When by, this is the Buddha. When by knowing impermanence, change, fading away, and cessation of forms, one sees as it actually is with proper wisdom that forms both formerly and now are all impermanent, suffering and subject to change, joy arises. So from noticing impermanence, there can be a sense of joy. I've, I've, I've noticed that myself and sometimes attending to impermanence, sometimes for several days on end, you know, all day long in retreat, and I've noticed that something joy, like I'm really in contact with reality and its mysterious nature. And it can be quite beautiful just to stay with impermanence. It can be beautiful to do that for 20 minutes, half an hour in a meditation, or to do that for a longer period. Also from the Buddha, all things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings peace. Secondly, some speak of the eternal present and being in the present, in the now, and that this is possible. This is uh, Eckhart Tolle. Time isn't precious at all because it is an illusion. We would say it's a kind of construction. What you perceive as precious is not time, but the one point that is out of time, the now. 
That is precious indeed. The more you are focused on time, past and future, the more you miss the now, the most precious thing there is. And so from the point of view of the present, we experience the past as occurring in the present. We experience the future as something occurring in the present. A thought about something that's occurring in the present moment. So it's a way to to guide our practice. And in fact, when we really look carefully, there may be no such thing as the present moment. It's a concept that's forever, when we look carefully, forever fleeting. And a third aspect, I'm being brief here for the purposes of time. The third aspect is that what we might call awakened awareness or awakened experience is not bound either by time or by space. And that this is pointed to by the Buddha and many teachers and is pretty accessible to us. Having it around a lot is hard. But we've all probably had experiences in which we're out of time and there's kind of a large awareness. This can happen a lot being in the forest or in the mountains or uh, with beauty. That we, we that in a sense time stands still, we go beyond a sense of self, and in fact we can go uh, beyond being bound by concepts. This is from a great Indian sage named Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. He says to a person he's talking with, in your world everything must have a beginning and an end. It does not, you, if it does not, you call it eternal. In my view, there is no such thing as beginning and end. These are all related to time. Timeless being is entirely in the now. Being and not being alternate, and the reality is momentary. The immutable reality lies beyond time and space. And this is from a a new book that I think is just coming out in February called The First Free Woman. It's translations of poems by the early Buddhist nuns. Beautiful new translation. And this is about, this is uh, uh, from one of the early nuns writing about her experience of being in the present and really giving her an account of her transition from more ordinary mind to uh, more awakened mind. After 25 years on the path, I've experienced almost everything except peace. When I was young, my mother told me that I would find true happiness only in marriage. Remembering her words all these, those years later, something in me began to tremble. I gave myself to the trembling, and it showed me all the pain this little heart as it had ever known, and how countless lives of searching had brought me at last to the present moment, which I happily married.
And then from within this timeless awareness, it's actually possible to experience a time. Some of the, uh, Martin Buber spoke about how some of the great Jewish mystics from the Hasidic tradition, he said, they towed time into the timeless. (laughs) They brought uh, time into the timeless because from a timeless perspective, one can work with time but see it as a construction and work with it. So ultimately, ultimately, even the timeless is a concept or a construction. And ultimately, we go beyond being bound to either and from a timeless place can be with time. Okay. So how to get there? Okay, how to, how to practice... And uh, four ways of practicing. The first is, related to what we've covered so far, the first is really track how you construct time. Notice planning, notice remembering, notice how you go to past and future, notice anxiety around time, notice what's happening with time. Do that with mindfulness. Keep noticing Uh, how you work with time. That's going to be my invitation for the next week to practice. So first way of practicing is just to notice all the constructions. Second way of practicing, track impermanence, a separate practice. And we could do this in the way that I suggested in the guided meditation. One way you could uh, be, I don't know, be near a creek or be near something that has some sounds and notice sounds arising, passing, uh, rising, staying for a while, passing away. When we when we do this sometimes in a retreat, I might ring bells a lot, have three or four different kinds of bells and ring them and just listen. Be aware of the arising of the sound, the staying, the vibrating. And eventually it will pass away. We can do that with sound. We can do that with body sensations. We can just... If we're quiet enough, we can sit and just watch thoughts arise, stay for a while, pass away. Sometimes we can be with the whole of experience and just notice whatever is predominant, moment by moment, takes a certain amount of quiet in the mind. So that's the second, study impermanence. Third, try to stay in the present moment. Be in the present moment. Again, it can take some sense of quiet, but be with, see if you can access what we sometimes call these flow experiences. Maybe, maybe start with small activities like be with uh, washing dishes and just say, I'm going to just be in the present moment with the dishes and try to, try to develop that. Or it could be, I'm taking a walk. I'm just going to be with my walking or just be with sights and sounds and just stay with the present moment, or I'm in a, you know, uh, uh, can do this also in the meditation. Let me just be with the present moment. So having some discipline to stay in the present moment, starting where it's easier. And doing that as a practice is a third practice. And then the fourth is a little more challenging, sometimes a lot more. This would be find ways of accessing that kind of timeless awareness. You know, and... We can explore this sometimes in retreats or teaching. I've sometimes brought it in here. Generally, it requires uh, some preparation and a, a fairly quiet mind. 
but there are ways of doing that that maybe maybe another time I can do that where we um, sometimes it helps if we are beyond uh, the, if the, if our mind gets quiet that's one way that is can give us some access another is if our hearts are very open and in fact some ways of practicing metta particularly where we let the metta spread out in all directions, can also access this large awareness. Another one is to have a big sense of space. Let your mind be like space. We did that a little bit in the guided practice today. Okay, so I'll just close and we can open things up and uh, to discussion. This is from a Tibetan teacher, uh, Kempo Soltrum Gyamso Rinpoche, He says, until concepts are exhausted, there is time and you make preparations. However, you should not grasp onto time as truly existent. And you should know that within the essential nature of the mind, time does not exist. Hmm. So, thank you for your kind attention during the uh, time of my talk. Let's just sit quietly for a moment and just see what comes to you, whether there are any insights, questions. I think I want to also invite you, if you wish, if you'd like to, for the next week, work with some of the practices of looking into time which ones appeal to you? Thank you. And can take uh, the question uh, that was raised during the talk first, if you'd like to, or, or it could come later. Do, do, would you still like to ask that? Okay. Well, go ahead. I was just thinking when you were talking about time, and I was thinking about media. Yeah. And um, affirmations, like, you've got to do this. Yeah. You've got to do that. And the fear that's around it. Yeah. And it seems pretty constant just walking out your doors sometimes. Yeah. That you're going to run into these expectations and uh, deadlines. And yeah. It's uh, pretty overwhelming. It's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's so much of that uh, structures our contemporary world. And... Of course, at other times in human history, it wasn't like that, right? You know, and, you know, we all have to uh, work with that. It's very much time pressure. You know, there are all sorts of questions about when you get an email, what's the expectation of how long you should leave till you respond? How about a text, right? And there's a sense of pressure and uh, I know even just uh, unplugging for a day can be incredibly relaxing, right? 
And there have been cultures where some that emphasis on deadlines and time pressure was almost non-existent. Right? You know, I think of having visited indigenous culture, uh, I think particularly of uh, visiting and being invited to a potlatch in British Columbia. I think I've sometimes talked about that. And, um, you know, it went on for three days. It kind of started sometime in the afternoon. People, when people gathered, it wasn't a specific time. And it went on until it finished. Sometimes two or three in the morning. There's a very different sense of time. I think they, people did agree that it would occur on a particular day. There was agreement there. But yeah, I think you're pointing to the uh, social pressure related to time, which, again, even that person, uh, was it uh, Plautus, in Rome 2,200 years ago, he was, he was going a little bit nuts because of the time pressure from all these blasted sundials. <laughs> right, so, yeah, so... And I think I, when I was uh, doing a little bit of preparation last night for the talk, I, I looked up time, and there are actually quite a few books that talk about the acceleration of time uh, in a digital society, right? how time gets accelerated and more pressured. Yeah. Please, yeah. Is this on? Yeah. Yes. So... Um, I was thinking as you were speaking about um, time and identity and self, um, just having retired two years ago, gone through the experience of time, experiencing time in such a different way that I didn't know who I was for a while. Not having the pressures and not having stuff I had to do, you know, and it was very... At first, it seemed negative, and then, of course, ultimately, it's incredibly freeing. But yeah, powerful, right? That uh, so much of the sense of self is connected with work, job, productivity. Yeah, that need to be productive. Is be, huge. be productive, and when one's not "quote unquote" productive, then who am I? Exactly. Right, and because we don't have good models, right? Some societies would have models of what it means to be an elder. Right, and we, we don't have good models for that. So uh, you're, you're fortunate that you came through and came into something quite positive. I think people get lost yeah. sometimes. Or they run away from it. What? They, they run away from it and they go back to work. Or they go back to work, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. How many can relate in some ways to that? Yeah, yeah. It seems you know? to vary a lot by culture and by place, too. I found out a few years ago that in Berlin, Andante in music is slower than in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Up front here? Okay. I was just um, thinking about how parenting is such a time-driven endeavor. I have two, I have small kids, they're 10 and 7, and so I, (laughs) I feel this. I sit here and I think, yes, I get that. And then I think, 
I don't think I could be that loo- like loose with you know there there's yeah. a schedule and they've got to go to bed and they've got to eat and um so balancing that is really interesting and staying um around parenting as well staying present um with what they're doing particularly because they're siblings and they just you know they're siblings so they they behave the way they're behaving just being present with it and um trying not to control it so much but then grappling with discipline mm-hmm. um so those are the things that came up for me when yeah there's a lot of uh a lot of wonderful inquiry possible uh you know I, I was thinking a few things as you were reflecting and others could could share also on this that uh um, you know, the first step, the first kind of practice I was suggesting wasn't so much changing anything, but just seeing what's there for me. What are the constructions of time? You know, how do I work with time? And just seeing, I mean, maybe maybe out of looking at that, there might be some sense of, oh, I can shift that. But mostly it's just looking. And obviously a lot of planning can be very helpful and powerful. So mostly it's just the looking initially and seeing what's there. And then another thought occurred to me related to some of the cultural discussions about the culture. What would it be like if we actually told, you know, actually gave some guidance to the kids about time? And this is how we're doing it. It's kind of a construction. It's not reality. (laughs) Uh, And then maybe you had... uh, almost something like one day a week where you do it like people have the Sabbath or something in some traditions where you do it a little differently and saying, okay, today we're going to do time differently, right? Or something like that. That would be interesting, right? Like where you, where you give them some clarification that this is how we're working with time, but also saying it's not the only way to do it. There's another option, you know, that could be actually, uh, uh, a lot of fun, you know. I was also reflecting as you were talking. We did just having come from a retreat, where we, you know, even on some retreats where I invite people to explore the nature of impermanence and time. Yeah, we all we always have a very very tight schedule, <laughs> right? It's interesting. Like, and some actual teachers. Um, I think there's a teacher uh, from Burma, Uteshaniya. Some of you may know. He dispenses generally with the schedule. It's interesting. His motivation is to see what the, especially what the motivation is moment by moment. Why are you sitting or not sitting? Why do you decide to end a sitting or not? And that's you know, to see what's there in the mind and heart, right? That's, uh, but it's interesting that, you know, we work uh, with most retreats at Spirit Rock. And even this class, we have a very clear schedule, right? So obviously it has its benefits, but maybe maybe we should do it differently here sometimes. Okay. <laughs> so two things. Uh, a phrase that I use sometimes that came to me yeah. this morning is, I am in the world I am not of the world, which helps me to recognize uh, a balance there. And the other thing is my mother, who just died at the age of 101, and for the last 
several years, she was increasingly losing her memory, but she was able to let go of the concern that she was losing her memory, and she was more and more living joyfully in each moment. Mm -hmm. And if she had to be reminded again and again, oh, yes, we're going to a concert, oh, or we're going to celebrate a birthday, she would be experience the joy of that each time (laughs) (laughs) she was reminded. Right. And I thought she was just a wonderful example of how to to age. Wow. And how Mm. to... uh, live increasingly in the moment, and then let go. And what she did was on December 31st, she celebrated the new year, and then that evening she went to sleep and she never woke up. Mm. Perfect way to go. (laughs) Thank you, Marty. There's so much, so much there, right? Just because, just the way that you know, I I was going with the sense that there could be the joy because she doesn't have the memory. Oh, we're going to the party. And we may just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to the party. It's in my mind. I've got the plan. And I may lose the sense of joy because I'm so focused on, oh, I know what it is. Here's what we got to do. And she doesn't have that happening so much. It's just joy. Oh, a birthday party. Wonderful. <laughs> right, so... Right, so that sense of being sort of regimented in time can can take away some of our joy because we're we're so much, let me make it happen, let this happen. Yeah, a wonderful story. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe one more. Yeah. Well, on the shoulders of that, uh, my sense of time is feels very deeply tied to my sense of peace. Yeah. And when I'm at peace, I don't pay attention to yeah. time, and I don't have I don't care about time. And but when there's agitation or stress, um, you know, I want things to be different. Yeah. And different is all of a sudden two. You know, peace is one. Different is the, yeah. and something else. So I it kind of raised the question for me about you know in the in the Buddhist tradition of just uh, accepting all things, mm-hmm. and so there's there's the the dance, I guess. But 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 more than anything, just my sense of time is really tied to my sense of peace. Yeah, yeah, and uh, thank you. Yeah, that's that's it's really uh, yeah. I'm wanting really to encourage the inquiry. It's that's uh, how many can relate to that one out there. That when there's a uh, significant level of peace it could mean that I'm not uh, worried about this or that or maybe even coming out of peace when I do use time it's lighter maybe less tight less less controlling you know I'm really peaceful oh yeah yeah maybe I'll maybe I'll go visit this person this afternoon okay let's see what I feel like <laughs> rather than okay it's two we better get there <laughs> Right, so very interesting. So, um, okay. So let me, let's. Um, how many would like to look into your experience of time in the next week? Okay, great. And so, 
Let me just invite a moment or two, a minute or two, for each person to bring to mind how you'd like to practice. I, I outlined four ways of practicing. The first is more general. It's really looking at our experience of time, noting patterns. Many of them might be very much like what people reported, but just paying attention both in the meditation and outside of the meditation, noticing patterns related to time. That's the first. The second is having some more focused, especially meditative uh, focus on impermanence and change, noticing how change might occur. This again can be done simply by just focusing on one sense, like sound or sensation, and just seeing how things arise, stay for a while, pass away. That's the second. The third is emphasizing staying in the present moment. can be done in meditation, can be done with very simple activities, taking a walk, doing the dishes, and so forth. And the fourth is seeing if you can access a kind of spacious, timeless awareness in which there's no sense of time and everything just passes through. That can be harder. Uh, maybe I'll go more into that next time. But those, those are the four. And just see of those, which would you like to work with? So we close by recognizing that we do this practice for our own learning, our own growing. But we also are motivated that our practice may benefit others. And may the the benefits indeed of our morning together be there for us, for those in our lives, and also then beyond the boundaries of our hall and of Spirit Rock going out into the world for the benefit of all beings, knowing that that includes us. So thank you for your practice, your attention. And uh, hope everyone has a uh, good time next week exploring time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.